Albania was ramping up, they rebelled against their government. And we were heading out to the capital of Tirana when uh, we then were being pursued by what I can only assume is, is rebels. And for those of you out there, all you military folks and stuff, you know, the only thing that's going to happen there is you're either going to be executed, put up for ransom, or you're going to be tortured. I'm excited today to have Brett Miller as my guest on the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Uh, Brett is a fellow veteran like me, U.S. Army. Uh, he's a medic there. He's um, owner of 110 Fitness, which is the largest wellness center in the world for people with Parkinson's disease, which is near and dear to my heart because my father-in-law suffered from that, and I saw the devastating effect of that. He's an author of a terrific book called It's a Beautiful Day to Save Lives. But he partnered with Michael J. Fox Foundation and a bunch of universities, really trying to figure out how to heal Parkinson's and to delay the onset as well as to mitigate the symptoms. Extraordinary interview. Anyone who's dealing with that or, or has anyone in the family, then you're going to want to listen to this podcast. Fascinating guy also talks about his experiences in uh, Macedonia at the height of the ethnic cleansing over there in Bosnia in 96, 97. And he basically got chased and hunted. So at any rate, check out the podcast. It's definitely worth your time. And thank you for listening to Unveil Mind Podcast. Here you go. Brett, so stoked to have you here. And thanks for coming on the podcast twice. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Humbled and uh, stoked to myself to be a part of this. I got a double dip here. <laughs> yeah, none of us are perfect. So that first conversation was a warm up. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So how have you been? How are things going back there in the East Coast? You're in Boston, right? Good. Yeah, we're just outside Boston, about 20, 25 miles south, heading towards Cape Cod and Plymouth. Mm -hmm. Most people are familiar with that yeah. geography. We're busier than ever. You know, we're just starting to uh, come out of the smoke from uh, COVID-19 and we're grinding and we're back at it. You know, we consider ourselves the special operations of Parkinson's wellness here. Any programming that you could ever think of, any research program, any of the giant foundations that you think of, like the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the Davis Finney Foundation. We do research for all those folks, as well as some of the big hospitals here in Boston, as well as some of the hospitals all across the country. So uh, we're jamming and we like it like that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I want to come back to that and learn more about the work you're doing there. But let's get into bread a little bit first. Let's talk about kind of your early influences and, and what led you into the army and what that experience is like. And how did you get so passionate about wellness and all that? So let's go backwards. Sure. Yeah. You know, I brought up by a single mom for part of my life. You know, my mom worked. My brother and I were home alone for most of the time. We were not with my grandfather. And, you know, we had um, a pretty simple childhood. And, you know, I was an overweight kid, really not into fitness, not doing much. I used to fight a lot when I was in school. I protected the kids from the bullies. And that was kind of my mantra when I was in elementary school and into junior high. And then I recognized the fact that I had to buckle down and get some good grades if I wanted to go anywhere in my life. and you know, my mom was remarried to my dad, who I consider my dad, who was a, a first Marine division Marine. Mm. He ran a tight ship and he whipped us into shape and uh, made us respectful young men. And I had a grandfather also who uh, was in the same PT boat as John Kennedy. They were great friends. Oh, they lived in Nantasket, which is over here in the Boston area. They were very good friends for many years. And so we had a really great military background and history in my family. My brother then went on, he's four years older than me, to be a lifer in the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, hoo -ah. 
you know, from there it was, you know, what did I want to do when I graduated from high school? And uh, I joined the army. I wanted to be a medic. And I knew that right out of the gate from some experiences that I had that you'll read about in my book that led me up until that time. And um, I wanted to be a soldier, but I also wanted to help people. And it was a perfect combination for me. Four days later of graduating high school, I found myself in boot camp in Fort Dix, New Jersey. As you know, you know, the struggle is real at that point in time. It's quite a, a reality shock. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, moved up through the ranks. I knew that I wanted to continue this process. Back and, you know, I don't want to just gloss over the experiences that showed you that you were meant to be or, you know, you perceived you were meant to be in the healing, you know, medical profession. So you, you were part of an opportunity to save someone's life, if I recall, right? Yes, as a kid. many times. So let's talk about those and, and why you think that was and what happened. From when I was young? Yeah. So my whole book is based on situations where I'm finding myself or the universe is finding for me places to be to rescue people or to save people's lives. And as a young man, starting out at the age of six, my brother fell through the ice and the cranberry bogs that we lived in. And he went under, but he went through and he was floating across. So I was unable to pull him through the ice right back out. And as what seemed a very long period of time, you know, he was under and coming up and hitting his head up against the ice. And I was trying to reach down. I thought I was going in the drink too. Clearly I'm still here. So we were able to get out. That was the first situation where I was presented with that type of sort of emergency care, if you will. Did he like come upon an opening or how did you get him out? Well, we, he came back into the opening that he originally had gone into. And again, we had no business being there. We were throwing rocks into the ice and he slipped and went in the drink. But fortunately, like I said, we're still well, both of us. It sort of rolled into that for me. You know, at the age of seven, I was caught in an undertow with a young friend of mine who didn't know how to swim well. And he was drugged into the ocean and I couldn't find him. And then I finally found him and was pulling him out of the water. I mean, and these situations kept happening for me as a young person, as you'll read in my book. And that's sort of, you know, the gateway, I think, for me to recognize that my destiny was to be a medic and to help people. So you went, you went in the army with that intention, got through boot camp and infantry school, right? And then you went to, did you go right to medic school after that? Correct. Yes. Specialty school for medic. Yes. San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. Okay. And tell us about some of the experiences you had in the army. Did you go to war? What was that like? So I write in my book about two chapters. I'm very humble and who I was as a soldier. But, you know, I, I talk about a couple a couple things that I thought the world should know about. And one of those things was I was split from my team and was actually picked up by what's called uh, the European Command or what we call UCOM for the Joint Contact Team Program when the whole Bosnian conflict had occurred. And I was really high speed. And like I said, I thrived on being a really great medic. And I was pulled out of my team and brought out there and sort of pretty much just kind of put into this gigantic mess. For those of you out there that are unaware of the massacre of Sabrenica that occurred in 1995, there were 8,000 children and men who were chased into the woods and murdered in two days. The whole form of ethnic cleansing in Bosnia was real and alive. There were about 1.3 million refugees that all military branches from different parts of the world were trying to move all these people to the Tuzla airport and to different places where there were refugee camps to get them to places of safety. So Sweden, Germany, Albania, all these other countries were participating. And my job 
was in Macedonia. I was sent to Scope J Macedonia and I was put in charge of trying to triage injured and people who had been displaced from their families with the military in Scope J. And they live in very archaic comparative to the United States. Their hospitals are stainless steel bowls with not the cleanest type of uh, atmosphere. A lot of homeless children, people still with, you know, amputations from all the landmine issues. And so it was just this giant chaotic situation where it started weighing itself pretty heavy for me, where I was, you know, starting to take all of this in while I was trying to work and be the best medic I could. You know, thank God for the Dayton Peace Accord that sort of slowed that down. But post-war Macedonia was a disaster. Mm. So I write about that in, in my book leading up to one of my next missions. Again, I was by myself and was trying to be a part of a, a humanitarian operation through NATO. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in a NATO Humvee being escorted across the borders into Albania, where uh, we were tracked down by some rebels. For those of you, again, historically in 1997, you know, Albania was ramping up. They rebelled against their government. There was a lot of tumultuous sensation there already. We were heading out to the capital of Tirana when uh, we then were being pursued by what I can only assume is is rebels. And for those of you out there, all you military folks and stuff, you know, the only thing that's going to happen there is you're either going to be executed, put up for ransom, or you're going to be tortured. And I knew that was a fact. And again, on these humanitarian missions, you know, no weapons, you're not allowed to carry those things. Again, I was a combat medic. So they, they didn't care that you were UN at this point. You were just some, an opportunity for them to extract either revengeance or get some money. Yeah. And, you know, for all you out there, you know, the Geneva Convention is an interesting convention. You know, the United States adheres to that, but that's not true in other countries. And that's real. Luckily for me, I'm going to leave it to the book because, you know, I'm alive and I'm here and I am well. But uh, that was probably the tipping point for me that kind of led into my discharge from the military and then also into a lot of human issues that, you know, PTSD and things of that nature. Okay, so let's talk about that. So you transitioned. That was a fairly traumatic event. You, you escaped with your life, obviously. And let's talk about your journey back home, reintegration into mm. you know civil life and dealing with like a lot of vets do, m- most vets, the trauma of that reintegration and post-medic stress and whatnot. How did you handle that? What were some of the key inflection points that, that would be interesting and valuable for the listeners? Yeah. One of them was, you know, actually talking to some of my team members about the guilt that I was experiencing about leaving because I just couldn't get my act together. When I got home, you know, I had a lot of busyness in my head, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I was stuffing it down, I think, for years at that point. But I had a lot of fear that I was unaware of, a lot of guilt of leaving because I had been with these six men, you know, who are the finest men I know in my life. So there was a lot of guilt when I left. I went into my civilian world. I was able to go to college and finish up my degree and become a physical therapist. And life was good for me for a very long time until I got married and started having children. And then I always tell people I was like a lion in a cage one day. I woke up and I was pacing back and forth, thinking that it was going to be better than this. I was angry. I was isolating myself. There was all kinds of turbulence in my body. I just I knew something was wrong, and I was thinking at the same time I should be grateful for everything that I have, Hmm. and so I was pissed. That went down a very slippery slope, very quick mark for me, and and like a lot of soldiers, you know, 
Now they're doing such a better job at transitioning people with liaisons and such. But, you know, in 1998, that wasn't really the case. And so I found myself using alcohol to control my emotions and using anxiety medication to control my emotions and spiraling, spiraling, spiraling. I was working. I had money. I owned two homes. I had cars, but I had nothing. You know, I was just not identifying with myself to the point where, you know, everybody has a turn back point, right? Where you feel that sensation of wanting to quit. I'm sure you had that probably in buds and, you know, a lot of other people in this world where you get that turning point where you know that if you stop at that point, there is no guarantee that nothing will ever come. For me, it was a pistol down my throat, sitting in a car on the side of the road, getting ready to blow my brains out. Wow. That's where it took me in a couple of years really quick. I think, well, let's just talk about this in the broader context. Now that you know, and we know a little bit more about what happens in veterans and others who are exposing themselves to TBI and to um, that kind of trauma, it doesn't always show up, you know, right away. You would think it does, but it's often, you know, insidiously slow. And from what I've learned, a lot of it, it has to do with massive hormonal imbalances, right? You're just not producing the right happy hormones, which means you're producing the stress hormones. And, you know, the relentlessness of that day in and day out suddenly sends you more and more out of balance, which affects your moods, affects your attitude, your optimism, your whole world just starts to close in, right? Yeah, you're overdosed on cortisol. I mean, the cortisol levels are probably through the roof. Your adrenaline, you're thinking you're still somewhere, but you're not there. And you know, you're looking for the exits in church, you're looking for the exits in buildings, you're looking at humans and judging them based on how they look, you know, it's uh, character assassination, I call it. It's a scary place to be. Right. And so what can we say to vets or anybody, especially, because this is not just vets, like any mm-hmm. people who are just suffering from the trauma of COVID can have this kind of imbalance and, and start to creep up on it. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing the great resignation. But what are the warning signs? And what can we do to really interrupt this earlier than putting a freaking gun in your mouth and asking yourself mm-hmm. that question. Well, one of the things is, you know, if you are a friend or you're a family member of a veteran or somebody who you know that may have had some issues with PTSD or like you said, traumatic brain injury, concussion, you want to watch for obviously, you know, isolation techniques where people start to move themselves away from socialization, crowds, and also just watching their behavior when you're with them. Are they quiet? Are they not really open about their feelings? You know, those are the, some of the things that I notice primarily is that people start to isolate and withdraw from society. And it's hard with COVID, right? Because people are withdrawn from society because of COVID at this point. So again, I go back to the buddy checks. You know, I still call my team members, you know, mm-hmm. how you doing every couple months, you know, and we get together every once in a while, but we're kind of spread across the country. But, you know, it's, you really got to be keen about that. And, and if you're somebody who's actually suffering, And I know this is hard, but it saved my life. And I waited 40 some odd years to do it was you got to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And it can be a friend. It can be a family member. You've got to ask for help because like you said, it's so insidious and occurs so quickly that you find yourself standing on top of the bridge faster than you ever thought you would thinking that you don't have a purpose and you have a huge purpose, you know? So that's my biggest thing. I always tell people, you got to ask for help. Don't wait, ask for help. So how did you find help? You left us where you, you know, pointing a gun down your throat. What what happened next? What caused you to suddenly change? So my phone rang. <laughs> Thank God. Divine intervention there. And again, uh, you know, I talk about my faith and about 
divine intervention and, and universal given gifts. And we can talk about that. But my phone rang and it was my friend, Paul, who was at an AA meeting looking for me. Mm. His words to me, and I'll never forget them, was, you never have to do this again. And you never have to be alone again. Just walk through the door and come have a cup of coffee, is what he said to me. And supernatural selection, I don't know. But it was enough from that day, February 10th, that I never picked up a drink again in my life. And it's been over 12 years for me. Was that an instantaneous thing or was it the 12-step process itself and you know the whole kind of community of AA that really mm. cemented that? It was a process and it's a lot of work, you know, hitting your knees every day when you wake up, doing the work, journaling, meditating, exercising, hydrating, eating well. I mean, the whole gamut, Mark, you know. And I still follow that to this day because I also can still see when I start to veer off a little bit from who Brett Miller is. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I always like to tell people is if you don't know what to do and you can't ask for help, go help somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that is huge. And that's a big part of that AA protocol too. Yeah, reaching out and exactly. 12-stepping, sure. So it's a huge process. It doesn't happen like that, you know. Is it a, you know, a, a spiritual awakening? I'm sure it is. But then there's work to be done just like anything in life. It's a practice. It's a daily practice. I want to um, ask you something because I've been studying and reading a lot about how research on psychedelics has really, and I've had a lot of experience with vets mm. and SEALs who've experienced you know, complete transformation with cybacillin and other remedies, let's say, natural. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I also think there's research around their benefit for Parkinson's and other mental disease. So have you ever experienced that or is this something that you've researched or have familiarity with? Yes. Uh, clearly, you know, the world is, most people know about the use of CBD mm -hmm. and we use something that's a little bit different than that here at 110 Fitness. It's called CBG, cannabigerinol. Mm -hmm. And that's an extract that's a little bit different than your CBD. And we use it for sleep and we use it for pain management. So a lot mm -hmm. of people with Parkinson's disease have terrible, terrible time sleeping. And so uh, we use that product. We also use some of the rub-on sobs and things of that nature. But again, I use a straight up organic form of all of those things mm -hmm. that I get from a guy up in Oregon over your way who has a veteran run organic hemp farm nice. because there's a lot of chemicals in those products if you're buying them off the shelf. The other thing that we have, which is an actual FDA approved medication, Mark, is uh, there was a PhD guy up in Vermont who was using LSD mm -hmm. and looking at the extracts from that and which neurotransmitters that the LSD was affecting. And he was able to, instead of sort of the technique that most people use is kind of like a spray and pray, you hit all the neurotransmitters in hopes that your tremor goes away or your dyskinesia goes away. They were able to use the LSD and find out the exact receptors that caused some of these things in Parkinson's and they made a medication to then oh. just address the one neuroreceptor that is the cause right. for the dopamine cells to utilize for different parts of Parkinson's. Has there been any work with cybacillin and microdosing in terms of its impact on Parkinson's? I know that they're doing that with regards to post-medic stress and, yes. and cybacillin has been shown to have a really positive impact on addiction, especially smoking and alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I imagine it has an effect on Parkinson's as well. I mean, it will be shown to. You would think so. At this point uh, right now, they are not. 
A lot of the technology and the science right now is leading to genetic issues. And so they're doing a lot with the CRISPR techniques, with gene editing and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. I just came off of a huge research roundtable in New York City with the Fox Foundation. And a lot of it is all, we know that there's three genes that are responsible for Parkinson's. We think there's about 52. Mm -hmm. So the scientists are looking for that in ways to figure out how they can either interrupt genetic protein folding or what we call genetic editing, yeah. where you can actually change the DNA structure. So how did you get interested in, well, first you started your gym, but did you start it to focus on Parkinson's patients or did that just kind of evolve and how did that evolve? So I started it for Parkinson's and then it evolved into an all-inclusive. Our primary purpose is Parkinson's, we're the largest in the world, but we actually do programming for disabled vets, disabled youth, disabled adults, people with CTE, concussion. I have all kinds of neurotechnology programs that I use here. We also do programming for women who've been affected by domestic violence. So it's kind of like a niche program for very specific disorders, diseases, abilities, disabilities. Mm -hmm. So I was working in the boxing world, uh, professional boxing. I've trained professional fighters, Olympic fighters. And one of the things that came out of, ironically, from boxing was that if you train someone without the contact as a professional fighter, they found that Parkinson's symptoms started to decrease. And this happened about 12 years ago. A lot of people jumped so on So you don't mean training them for boxing, but training a Parkinson's patient with that kind of bilateral, as if they're boxing, shadow boxing. Yeah, yeah, as if they're boxing. So mitt work, battle ropes, speed bag, heavy bag, double mm-hmm. M bags, anything you would train like a professional fighter, minus the contact, clearly, right? Yes. Yeah. In any event, I jumped on that bandwagon because I was a physical therapist working in professional fighting. So I had like the best of both worlds. I started a very, very small program as an aside from my other business five years ago, and we moved within a year. We started out with two people. We had about 50 people in about three months, and I needed a bigger space. And nowadays, we see about 200 people a week that come through our facility here with Parkinson's disease, Mm. pre-pandemic. So you get the protocol of exercise, you know, this boxing protocols, nutrition, CBG, the whole work, right? Diet. Yeah, you know, I preach um, a lot that you talk about, you know, this total health. So it's nutrition, hydration. Unfortunately, there is some medication that people have to take. But then we do anything from yoga, mindful meditation. So we encompass the mental, spiritual, physical components. So all three of those things. And we find, speaking of, uh, I know you're familiar with the OODA loop. I use the OODA loop for Parkinson's folks. Mm. In other words, they look at what works for them and they document all this stuff so that if something else happens, they can then loop back and say, oh yeah, back in June of 2018, this is what worked for that and I need to go back to that. So that's what we do here. We try to get people on a recipe for themselves because they're all snowflakes. Every single one of them has something that just tweaks out a little bit different. And so we put that all together and figure out you know, what is it going to be that works for you. So, I mean, we do drumming, ballroom dancing. I do boxing underwater. So I do a program uh-huh. in, the, in the water. So anything you could ever think of, we do. Do you do all that at the gym or do you just prescribe it? No, everything is done here in the facility. We have Reiki, massage. We have a full art workshop. We paint. We sculpt. We cool. pottery. Yeah. So much more than the gym. Why do you still call it 110 Fitness when it's so much more? So 110 Fitness actually has a military reference to it. So my team, we used to use the word 110 as like a verb. Be like, can you 110 that? Or hey, 110, you want to get that for me? Or, and right. so this space is actually dedicated to my military team. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, do we have any idea what causes Parkinson's? I mean, I hear that as you just said, it was genetic. 
what's the background of Parkinson's and is there hope to cure it per se? Yes, there is a lot of hope to cure it. And again, let me just step back, Mark, and just tell you this. So there's about 3% of the people in our country are veterans with Parkinson's disease, which the economic burden is about $1.6 billion for the VA to care for these people a year. So there is a drive for a cure at this point in time, obviously, that's very, very big. The biggest foundation, like I talked about, Michael J. Fox Foundation, you know, their drive, they've raised a billion dollars in 20 years, and their focus is cure, cure, cure. What they're finding is that there is, we never thought it was a genetic issue, but now we know that it's a large genetic issue, probably like 90% genetics. The other issue that we know about, especially because of veterans, is that there's some environmental exposure component that is the trigger Mm -hmm. that then puts somebody into that movement disorder, Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. Agent Orange, burn pits. In the case of Cherry Hill, the dry cleaning vents that were venting into the barracks, the water issue they had there. So some sort of like pesticide or some sort of like fertilizer. So there's about three, like I said, there's three genes that we know of, like GAB1 and a LRK2, they call it, LRK2 gene, that if you have that and you have that activity that's increased, again, everything goes back to the gut, right? So we're finding it in the gut and then it goes through the blood-brain barrier via the vagus nerve or through your blood. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is to figure out how many other genes are responsible and is there a way that we can stop the gene from transferring up? Mm -hmm. So we're doing genetic testing now with families of people with Parkinson's so that we can kind of include them in the studies to then see if if I have that gene, what if I don't get Parkinson's or will I always? So there's a lot of questions Mm -hmm. out there, but a lot of it's headed in the direction of genetics and autoimmune or immunology disorders. It's fascinating. I could go on. Yeah, no, it's most fast. So the CRISPR stuff is basically gene editing or trying to change the expression of the genes. Correct. And then the rest of the work is really about slowing down and tamping the side effects, right, of Parkinson's. The best thing we can do right now is manage the symptoms. But we know with high-intensity interval training exercise that we're able mm-hmm. to do that along with a – some people are on medication, some people are not. But with the right medications, we can almost make you appear as if you don't have Parkinson's disease. Now, with Michael Fox, is he doing those types of therapies or is it, you know, do you have to be kind of young when you get into this? Like, is he doing high intensity training and all that kind of stuff? He is. Yes. As best he can. He's had some recent medical things that have set him back. He had a terrible fall and he also had a cancerous tumor in his spinal canal. So he's been set back. I saw him two weeks ago. He's doing phenomenal. Outside of his speech, his walking is much better than when I last saw him. Really? But I also know that he is also using, I do research for companies all over the world that use different wearable devices that help with like tremor. Oh. Um, and so I know that he's been playing around with some of those as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got first dibs at everything, right? Yeah, of course. He's a great guy. I think he's my age. Like, got to be like 58 or 60. Yeah. Yeah. He's had Parkinson's for like almost 30 years. And what's the prognosis? For longevity for someone with advanced Parkinson's? It depends when you're diagnosed. Yeah, if you're a young onset and you walk through my doors, I am very grateful to have you because early and often is the key. You got to get diagnosed early and then you have to exercise often. And if we do that, some people have withheld or kept themselves at the same level that they had 10 years ago through high intensity exercise and medication. So it really depends. And then there's, without getting into detail, there are also multiple different atypical forms of Parkinson's. 
Some of them are extremely aggressive and your prognosis from diagnosis is five to eight years and you're dead. Oh my. So there's other forms of extremely aggressive types of Parkinson's called PSP or MSA, multiple systems atrophy, progressive supranuclear palsy. So there's these other forms that are just, if you're diagnosed, it's a death sentence. Yeah, scary. It's such valuable work. I mean, I really honor that you're doing that. I wish I had known about it when my father-in-law was going through his issues with quality of life with him. Mm-hmm. We tried to get him to do stuff, but like, you know, Tai Chi and Qigong, you know, when he really needed to be doing were burpees and boxing. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we do both. So, you know, we do Qigong and we do Tai Chi, but then you're doing burpees. And we have our, uh, the Fenway Spartan, which is coming up this week on Sunday. We have 30 people with Parkinson's doing the Fenway Sprint with us. We have, you know, climbing ropes here. You name it. We have a spear throwing. We have a climbing wall for people to jump over. So we sim, you know, we train as we fight. Like I said, we have special mm-hmm. operations here. We train as we fight and we climb walls and we climb ropes. And this is what's expected of you. And just because you have Parkinson's disease does not mean that you cannot do this. Get back up and try again. Let's go. There's a lot of tough love here, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason why we are who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. So as you look forward, what's Brett like in 10 years? What's your future look like? Brett's future is to keep doing what he's doing. I am in the process of developing multiple other sites across the country. That's my goal is to have a 110 fitness that's available to someone like your father-in-law, that's available to somebody who's out in the outskirts of Arkansas so that they have ability. We created an app. It's the first ever wellness app for Parkinson's during COVID. So uh, we, it has 18 categories similar to what we do here. Um, and so we're offering that out to people as well. We gave it out free for a year during the COVID and now we're charging for it just to make back some of the money that it costs. They're very expensive. So we're hoping to do that. I want to still dig into the research and continue to do more and more research here. We're already doing a lot. The biggest thing I want to do is, you know, my biggest thing that I always preach to people and, you know, it comes from the Bible and, you know, too much is given, much is required. And for me, it's to continue from my own health, from what I came from, is to continue to give back on a daily basis in the truest form of humanity, which is helping other people. And in order for me to stay where I am with my own mental health, that's what I have to do. And so that's what I'm going to try to do for the next 10 years. What's your vision for the future of this country and of humanity? Well, I'm an optimist, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) My vision for the future, I would also say my hope for the future as well is, and I believe that hope has a lot of strength, is that, as you know, the energy And I know you feel this. I'm very much like you, or you're very much like me, but this energy that you feel, this chaos every day when you get up and, you know, I don't watch TV, I don't listen to the news, but I feel energy from the earth. I have to process that because I'm an empath, right? And so I know that better days are coming for all of us. And I feel like that, that people are going to start to come down from this COVID craziness, that we're going to start to get reorganized and re-engaged and refocused in our communities. But again, we need people like you and people like myself who are making differences within ourselves to then offer that to other people. And one by one, right, we become um, a circle of compassion, right? I love that. And so there's no exclusion there. I truly believe that's where we're headed because I think we've tipped so far that it's time to come back. And I think the younger generations, you know, I have a daughter who's 16 and she's amazing and she has great focus on where she thinks this world should be. And I believe that there are a lot of people like her that are 16 looking at 
all the different problems that we have, whether it's economical or whether it's racial injustice or whether it's the planet, you know. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I agree with your vision. Our vision at Unveil Mind is 100 million people in that circle of compassion who are vibrating the universal love level. Yeah, we're all vibrating right off of each other. Yeah. Recognizing the sameness instead of the separation, leading with peace instead of violence, the earth and healing the earth with all their actions. You know, so there's a, the basic expressions of that. Absolutely. When we scale that, when we scale that, then we move them Yeah. Just as an aside, one of the things that we do, we do drumming circles here, which are, I'm sure you've probably experienced are extremely powerful. Um, and we have a labyrinth that we put out on the floor that's this gigantic, it covers our entire floor, and we walk the labyrinth while we drum. And uh, one of the things I do is I use tuning forks to the universal hertz of the ohm mm-hmm. and bang them off. And then we actually run up to the top and down along people's heads to try to bring them back to that. I'm a big vibration guy, that neutral position of the universal ohm to kind of neutralize your brain. Nice. And it works. It does. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's awesome. It's we're doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, try it. I think it's like 750 hertz. So um, how do people find you? And what's the name of your app so that people can search for that? Sure, the app is 110 Fitness. So the number 110 Fitness, just like you see behind me here. You can find me multiple ways on the web at 110fitness.org. Obviously, email bmiller at 110fitness.org. Nice. And my book is available on uh, Amazon. It's a beautiful day to save lives. And also you can actually go to it's a beautiful day to save lives.com and you can order the book direct. I love that title, by the way. Just we smile and you got some great stories in there. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, thank you for reading it. Hope to get you to Boston someday and come see our facility. I would love to do that when I'm out there. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. When flights are a little cheaper and <laughs> you know, this is kind of a funny aside, but I was reading about a new concept executive jet that is like one quarter the cost of the current you know way to travel privately so it's like 320 dollars an hour versus 12 or 1400 an hour wow it's shaped like a cylinder more like a cigar and super light material so that's the way i'm going to get back east in the future because I, I am so tired of commercial travel yeah. it's literally one of the most negative experiences you know and i feel completely drained when i do it I'm like, oh. It is. It's draining. It's exhausting. Yeah. I guess the next best thing would be to beam me up, but always <laughs> soon enough. Before someone dematerializes yeah, me. Right? <laughs> Step into a box, you know, get me a TARDIS. Here I come, Doctor Who. <laughs> Brett, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your service and all you do for those who are suffering from Parkinson and vets, you know, with post traumatic stress and Parkinson's. It's really important work. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for having me again. Super appreciate it. Yeah. All right, my friend. All right. That's the Unveiled Mind podcast, folks. I'm always humbled when I meet someone like Brett, who has dedicated his life to serving the underserved, the, the disadvantaged, in this case, people who are suffering from Parkinson's, a very debilitating issue. So you can learn about him at 110fitness.org. His book is great. Beautiful day to save lives. Isn't that a great title? If you have someone in your family who um, is suffering, then get his app. Small price to pay to take some of the daily actions that can really help moderate and reverse some of the, uh, the symptoms. Too much is given, much is required. So take that to heart because everyone listening to this, much has been given. No question. So much is going to be required to us as this world transforms from our positive, abundant, authentic, 
and compassionate world. Till next time, this is Mark Dunn, your host. Hoo-yah.